Welcome to Deep Green, a bi-weekly show about how the built environment impacts climate change and equity. Deep Green is brought to you by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal. Buildings are some of the biggest things we make as human beings. So if you want to know how we can do better for the environment and for all life on this planet, you have to understand buildings and cities and all the things that go into them. And that's what we want to help you with here at Deep Green. In April 2022, President Joe Biden visited Portland International Airport to make some remarks about his infrastructure bill. The airport at the time was, and is, undergoing a major renovation, and the president took the time to point out one feature of the building, a 392,000 square foot roof made entirely of wood. The president got a bit poetic at this point in his remarks. Almost every single piece of wood being used was substantially harvested from local forests, he said. You can point to any beam and the folks building it can tell you where it came from. Our president is not alone in his admiration for a new class of building where wood, not steel, not concrete, but wood is the main structural material. We're not talking log cabins here exactly. So it's a specific kind of wood material, properly speaking, which is known in architectural circles as mass timber. When layers of wood are put together in a specific way, they're usually glued together, they make for material that has the structural strength of steel. And surprisingly, it is fireproof. Think plywood, but on the scale of a building rather than your tabletop. The Portland airport's new main terminal is part of a race going on all over the United States right now to build the biggest building possible out of this wonder material. All architects love it. Many developers love it. And in the right place, in the right circumstances, can be the most sustainable building material we have today. But exactly how sustainable is it? Because trees absorb carbon from the atmosphere as they grow, this means mass timber could have significantly lower carbon emissions than, say, steel, which puts a ton of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. I say could have lower carbon emissions because the devil is in the details. Figuring out exactly where the wood comes from, how it is grown and harvested, and how mass timber products are used and reused is vital for getting an accurate picture of a mass timber building's carbon footprint. Jacob Dunn and Marty Brennan, both associate principals at the architecture firm ZGF, are two of the designers behind the Portland Airport building that President Biden loves so much. And they have developed a tool called the Upstream Forestry Carbon and LCA tool. We're going to call it Upstream for short. In partnership with the University of Washington to track the amount of carbon sequestered or emitted by mass timber materials for deepening our understanding of a material that most people are content to take at face value 
Upstream received a Metropolis Responsible Disruptors Award earlier this year. Here is Metropolis Digital Editor Ethan Tucker with Jacob Dunn and Marty Brennan explaining their tool and why all buildings made of wood are not created equal. Lately, everyone in the design world seems is talking about mass timber. It's a low carbon alternative to steel and concrete construction. And also the wood can actually sequester carbon from the atmosphere. Can you both help our listeners understand how that works uh, in terms of carbon sequestration and what the benefits of mass timber are from a carbon perspective as opposed to more traditional building materials and building systems? Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll give it a shot. And, you know, the benefits are, are threefold and they all have to do with the different life cycle stages of wood in terms of the emissions that it takes everywhere from extraction to manufacturing to end of life. Depending upon which module we're looking at, there are very specific benefits that wood can have over some of these other more carbon intensive or energy intensive materials. The first and, and kind of most straightforward is what we call the product stage which would be the extraction and manufacturing stage of, of wood, which is basically it takes less energy to use a chainsaw to chop down a tree and then to run a mill to use saws to kind of cut it down into a rectangular beam. Then it takes to forge steel or use an electric arc furnace to break steel down into a shape to then be poured, hot rolled, or cold formed. Just fundamentally it takes less energy to produce the same kind of structural product, the same function for wood, than it does for steel or concrete. And that's the first kind of benefit. And the, you know, depending upon how much of your structure is mass timber, you know, that savings can range anywhere between five to 25-ish percent to give it a, a magnitude of order. So it definitely makes, makes a difference. So that's the first step, just less energy to manufacture and create the beam. The second piece is when we start to get in some of the more advanced concepts around wood and also um, concepts that really celebrate the fact that it has a growth stage when it's a tree in the forest, that actually pulls carbon out of the atmosphere, right? It's sort of woods or forest superpower, right? To actually sequester carbon in the forest while it's growing. So we move that carbon from the forest into the, into the built environment as a beam or a structural product. And that weight of that product is roughly 50% carbon right? well, by, by mass. And essentially, if we are good stewards of that carbon over time, we can claim that storage. It's called the biogenic carbon storage in the product as a potential negative or a carbon credit against the overall net emissions of the LCA. So we take that as a credit for the carbon store in the wood, but as soon as we do that, we do have to think about the entire life cycle of that beam. So we can really only take credit for it in so far as much we're good, we're good carbon stewards of that, uh, of the carbon in that beam, and we keep it out of the landfill, we keep it out of the incinerator, and we try to reuse and salvage or upcycle or downcycle it, and whatever biogenic carbon is left at the end of that cycle, as the forest regenerates, then we can sort of claim that as a benefit where we have a net carbon sequestration, all the forest uh, carbon in the forest is replenished, and then we've increased the overall carbon of the system, both at the forest landscape level and the kind of built environment level. So that's the second aspect is biogenic carbon, the product. And then the third aspect would be the biogenic carbon in the forest, right? The other unique thing about wood is that there's an entire living, breathing ecosystem, right, that supports the, the creation of these products, uh, which is different than mining per se. So the way that I think about it is that imagine if we could source products from forests that are actually growing more trees than they cut down to produce these products. If that was, 
in fact happening, then we could claim a carbon stock benefit over time of that forest that we're sourcing from. This is in contrast to a forest that is depleting its carbon stocks as it produces products. We would say that those actually should have a carbon burden, right? But the good news is that most of our forests are generally increasing the amount of carbon they put on as they, they cut, albeit at different rates. So depending upon how much they do, we should actually be able to take or claim a benefit that isn't well understood or being claimed currently in life cycle analysis. I think you nailed it. I mean, just to sum up, I mean, we're talking, it's basically, it's a circular economy, right? And you're getting the benefit of carbon removal and carbon storage. But I, I think Jake sussed out the finer points of it that we really do need to be the stewards and be looking upstream and downstream of, can we keep that wood in a building or in furniture or in other products for 60, 100 or more years? Right. I mean, it sounds like what we're getting at here is sort of that timber is de facto more sustainable than steel or concrete, but that also there's a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of care that we have to make sure we do in order to maximize, maximize that benefit and not let that carbon go to waste or go back into the atmosphere. Well, I would go one step less than de facto, yeah. right? We can talk about this a little bit more with some of the other questions. But for instance, let me just throw a scenario out there. Because I would say it's generally true, right, that it's going to be coming from a source that is not depleting carbon stocks. But it depends on the state, the region, the kind of forestry that's being done. I mean, there's a lot of wood products that will be created from forests that are being deforested for like housing developments, right? As urban sprawl sort of goes out of the forest. So if your wood is coming from a forest that is no longer a forest, it's a housing development, then there it's one of the least sustainable things that we can do. So it really depends on knowing what your supply chain is, where your wood's coming from, what kind of forestry it's coming from, and sort of what the hardest practices are on the ground can allow us to give more credence or credibility to those claims it being sustainable product. Yeah, Jacob, I think that's so important and definitely sort of leading us into our, our, our next topic here, which is your firm, ZGF, has been working on this really massive project at the Portland International Airport that's made of mass timber. And as a part of that construction, your team has done a lot of research into sort of sourcing timber and understanding the full life cycle there. Do you want to just give us an overview of the project and know why you why you and the clients decided to go with this pretty cutting edge mass timber structure for it definitely i think we were really fortunate to have a client that wanted to engage with mass timber for all the right reasons right and some of those reasons were for biophilia right the idea of de-stressing the airport experience or air travel is something that is really keen on their mind so the idea of having this sort of biomorphic form driven you know, roof that has all of this natural wood grain texture exposed and the sort of the warmth of that material and the connection that we have to the outdoors was just a slam dunk, right? That was one of their highest priorities. That they felt like that the actual design could make both a physiological and psychological impact on both the passengers that go through this airport, which will be 35 million, right? When this is said and done, and then also on the thousands of employees that have to spend a huge part of their day at the airport. So that was one reason. The second reason was this idea of being the front door to the region, right? The airport, the Portland airport is really the most major airport to this area in terms of it's the first kind of conception of home that a lot of folks have when they're traveling. And it's a beloved airport too, right? It's a, a cultural gem. It won best U.S. airport from Travel Leisure magazine, I think eight out of nine of the past years. 
So they really wanted to accentuate what makes this region special. And part of that is sort of the kind of emphasis on being local, sourcing from the region, this idea that it's a really special region, both in terms of the people or kind of views on health and wellness and the kind of natural resources and cultural resources that we have. So they really wanted this to be of the region. That was sort of an interesting question because for architects and for designers, what does it mean to be of the region? What does it mean to actually create a local architecture? And it goes so far beyond just saying that like, oh, trees grow in our region. We're going to put trees in the building. We're going to do a mass timber structure. It really is about embracing the kind of timber histories, right, of the products that we're using, really understanding the supply chain and kind of all the different players through all those different levels. And the port really wanted to tell that story as part of this giant kind of major economic project that's spurring that economic development across the region. And that was sort of the, the last reason that I wanted to touch on is that the port really felt like this was a way to engage in sort of equitable sourcing in a really meaningful way that actually is about how we work and how we actually design buildings and how we source, which is really directing this money and being able to write a specification that ensured both the east and west side of the region was, was represented, knowing that the east side of the region was hit the hardest in terms of some of the economic stressors that have been happening for decades now, and then also being able to ensure that small family forests are represented, tribal forests are represented, community forests, nonprofits, you know, all of these parts of the supply chain that generally don't ever get differentiated or have that marketplace because it all just gets subsumed into the overall wood industry. So I think all those factors were the driving motivations behind them wanting to engage with wood. And then ZGF coming into that, helping them determine how to execute those goals was pretty interesting as well. And the kind of short story for that would be, I think there's really kind of two very special things that we were able to do with this project. The first is that to tell that local story, we really pushed for transparency and tracking in the supply chain beyond what business as usual or most projects would even think about, right? We really wanted to point to a beam in the airport and say, this beam came from these forests. And here's how they manage their woods. And here's what's been driving their economic, social, societal, environmental values. And here's how that aligns with the port's mission. And to do that was sort of very naive to go into this thinking that that was going to be possible because the industry is not set up to be able to track your wood back to the forest, right? It all sort of gets mixed up according to trying to push as much wood through mills because margins are so low because of the kind of industry that they exist in. But like doing anything out of the ordinary that makes it any less efficient is generally never thought of. But we were able to partner with mills, fabricators that were willing to work through this with us. And we actually know we're 40% of 2.6 million board feet of wood in the roof. We know exactly where it came from, right? We know exactly where these forests, where, which forests that we were supporting and how they were harvest, harvesting their wood. For instance, the ceiling that you see in the airport is made up of these three by six inch by 12 inch foot timbers, these mass timbers and 600,000 board feet. We're able to track 100% of that back to its forests of origin. The nine landowners in Washington, Oregon, that all of that wood came from. And they're all small families. There's two different tribal sources in there. They're nonprofits practicing kind of uh, fire resilience on the landscape forestry. And there's also university forests like doing experimental forestry, all part of that supply chain. We know exactly how all of that wood was harvested. The largest opening that supported that wood was a 12-acre patch cut with 10% retention, which is just incredible that we know that information, right? That we know exactly sort of what types of forest practices 
went into that because we were able to write a specification that required that level of tracking and for stewardship and to be able to tell that story in general. And we visited all a, a good portion of all of those forests with our client to actually see the harvest sites that fed that wood into the airport, which I think is pretty incredible. So 40% of the wood has that type of story. Basically, greater than 95% of the wood is sustainably harvested. And what we mean by that is we had determined five different pathways of what sustainable harvesting was, which included FSC certification, so using third-party certifications, but also expanded that definition to have more inclusive pathways to where if we didn't know where it was coming from and we could evaluate that source, that we could actually cast a wider net and include more folks that maybe weren't paying into that particular system. So as long as we could source back to a forest of origin, we could determine if it met custom criteria that we defined with the client through talking with forest landowners and other industry experts to figure out what worked for the airport. So that is a brief introduction to what we were able to do, but it, I think in terms of the motivations, the tracking, and then how we define sustainably managed forests were all really interesting things that we were able to engage with the project. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, it sounds like a really big challenge is sort of decommodifying timber in some way, understanding the particular particular circumstances of growth and harvest in each forest and context. Um, yeah. it, I think the interesting thing too that we get into is that to some degree, it's always going to be a commodity, right? Like we can't go, we can't shift the entire pendulum all the way to single tree selection and patch cuts. There's always going to be some level of production forestry that needs to happen to kind of like fulfill the demand, especially as mass timber grows its, its overall market share. So we were really interested in just what were some of the incremental things that we could do, even with something like clear cuts, to make them slightly more ecologically focused to make a big difference, right? And what we'd come up with for our criteria was sort of threefold. You know, you could make them smaller, slightly smaller, so you get more of a mosaic across the landscape with higher structural diversity. You could leave more behind when you cut, so the amount of retention is what that's called, that you could actually leave more trees behind to kind of continue the kind of ecological legacies pre and post harvest to allow that land to come back quicker, healthier, might damage the mycorrhizal network that's sort of in the soil as much. There's a lot of benefits to doing that. And then the third thing you can do is sort of let those trees get older. So you have more of a phase of that, that forestry stand, that forest stand where it's actually a fully functioning ecosystem. And then if you allow that to happen for a certain amount of time, you can have slightly larger openings. You can leave less behind because you allowed it to function ecologically in a different way. So those three things are something that, that can be small nudges to make a big impact across the landscape. Cool. Maybe maybe next we can talk about sort of the tool that you developed to track all of these, these many factors and sources, timber that you were relying on, and sort of how, how, how you developed the tool and I guess also sort of why, I mean, I think it's a little bit self-explanatory why you developed the tool, but but why you decided to make this a permanent, usable thing that could be used both by your team and by others in the future and sort of explain you know, where that came from and where, where you hope it will go. Sure, I'll, I'll take a crack at this and then Marty's going to jump into on some of the, the wood LCA, LCA aspects. And okay. a lot of the original research that we we're doing on the airport, we really wanted to make sure that we had we could scale this impact, right? We didn't want the airport to be this monument to be unattainable, both in terms of the way that we thought about carbon or the way that we did direct sourcing and tracking. So a lot of our work now moving forward is how do we take what we learned from the airport and create the tools and resources to allow the wider industry to engage these questions at large. 
right? Because we know that we all need to be doing this more and faster to have the impact that we need to, right, to help with climate change or to help just in terms of sustainability in general. So that was sort of the first reason why we wanted to, to build a tool. But the challenges were really just determining what is climate smart forestry? What is climate smarter forestry? What is climate resilient forestry? Do we only think about carbon? Do we think about a whole host of different environmental benefits beyond just carbon? They're all very kind of tricky questions to get into when we start to think about impact analysis or comparative analysis. And so we ultimately relied on a lot of the research that Ecotrust has been doing, David Diaz and crew, which is really looking at carbon stock change as a way to connect forest carbon to product carbon, right? So it's basically carbon stock change as one factor, then looking at the amount of timber output that's coming from a certain landscape, then you can actually divide the two into each other to come up with uh, kilograms of CO2e per meters cubed of round wood, which you can apply to wood products. So it's one way to connect that, right? It has its sort of pros and cons, but that was sort of what we've been piloting or trying to evaluate if that's one way to do it, but it's a narrow focus, right? Above ground biomass, carbon, when we know there's a host of other things that need to be done. The other issue is there's no sort of standards or formal programs of like how to do this, right? So when we do an LCA, there's a lot of different standards out there that say, here's how you calculate these modules. There is no standardized way to look at forest carbon. So that's been a challenge. The last challenge for Alternative Marty is that even if we can determine what climate smart forestry is from a procurement standpoint, it's really hard to target that wood, right? Let's say we know that this region or this forest or this landowner is doing really good forestry. They're like growing more trees than they're cutting, but they're still producing a good amount of forest products. We want to source from them. The supply chain is not set up for us to be able to do that very easily right, without kind of doing these higher levels of engagement, which we've been piloting with the Fairport as well, but it, they're all fundamental challenges. Yeah, I guess we were uh, working on the Microsoft project in um, Redmond, along with a bunch of companies, LMN, WRNS, MBBJ, and it was kind of this think tank of carbon accountants who working for a client that was literally like, get us to zero, and we're going to do the ILFI zero carbon certification we're taking this seriously. Simultaneously, they invested in the EC3 tool. And Stacy Smedley, who is at Skanska, she is the executive director. So there was kind of this extension of the project to get all the structural engineers, all the architects, all the GCs into EC3 from the start. And they, you know, Katie Ross, who's one of the sustainability directors at Microsoft, wrote a white paper on this whole process. So while we were piloting we would get on these biweekly calls with the building transparency folks, and they would ask us to take different categories and start like thinking through it. So we took wood <laughs> and it was by far at that point, they were really focused on concrete and, and EC3 is extremely strong in concrete with probably 50,000 EPDs. It was kind of the low hanging fruit. It was clear, like let's focus where immediately at the low hanging fruit. Wood with biogenic carbon is just so complicated. I think it was the last on the list. And so as we started chipping through it, you could see that there were all these kind of choose your own adventures with wood, whether you were using tally, there's just a checkbox that says biogenic carbon or not biogenic carbon. If you're using Athena to do an LCA, it's not going to give you a credit till module D, the very last module, it'll say, okay, at the end of life, a bunch of this wood's going to go to landfill. It's going to stay in the landfill. You get a credit. So, you know, it was just, it became obvious, like uh, we looked at European EPDs and some of those would, would give very favorable futures to that, that carbon. And so it was kind of just rolling the dice, which we're always doing playing the LCA game is we, we don't know the future. 
we don't know 60 years from now, 100 years from now. So I, I think working with Jake and, and Chuo, our research fellow from University of Washington, it was like, well, can we just start documenting these different data sets, these different workflows, and kind of look under the hood and make it a little more transparent where these assumptions are? Because we can sit down with a client and we can kind of look upstream and downstream and say, hey, there's all this uncertainty. But if we're transparent about that and, and we can kind of bring our values and, and our intentions into that process, maybe that's going to drive thinking for policies. Maybe it's going to start to, this led us to conversations with the EPA and waste specialists in King County who are looking, we have 300,000 tons of clean wood that pass through our county in Seattle every year. And one of the waste specialists, Kinley Deller, he has a vision where we're capturing all that wood locally. So this is a whole nother, you know, now we're looking downstream at another source of mass timber, salvage. And which in many cases is better in terms of the, the wood quality has been locked up in buildings for, in some cases, 100 years. This is beautiful dug fir, cedar, it's everything. We can turn that into upcycled mass timber that could become CLT. It could become NLT, DLT. So it, it just, it kind of was, it started with, let's just understand the data flows, wh where the data sets, what are the assumptions, what are the boundaries of those assumptions? Some are thinking one day, 60 years or a hundred years. And so we can, I guess, start those conversations with the supply chain or start the conversations with the architects. How are we designing for disassembly? It's just opened up this entire conversation of primarily around policy and design that are supporting keeping that, that carbon locked up in a building or like Jake's been doing, looking upstream at the forest, keeping that carbon in the forest. So really just opening those, those conversations. I think too, you know, this challenge of woods uncertainty when it comes to its life cycle analysis, is both its greatest challenge, but also its greatest opportunity, right? Because it means like the decisions that we make, both from an analysis perspective, and then also like a design procurement decision perspective, hugely impactful, right? You can imagine this, like, it doesn't matter what we do, it changes the emissions numbers 2%. And it'd be like, well, I'm not empowered to really change my behavior or to really go for this in any type of meaningful way. But like there's wide variability, as Marty mentioned, both in terms of the end of life, what happens to this wood at the end of its life versus kind of which forest does it come from? And then how do you deal with the biogenic carbon in the product? There's so much uncertainty there that it really behooves us to be intentional, both about what we do with wood from both the sourcing, end of life, detailing, design perspective, but also even what tool that we use, right? Because all the tools have different boundaries, which I think we'll get into in the next question a little bit. They all have different assumptions about their end of life. So it's really important for us as architects and designers and contractors and mechanical engineers and structural engineers, like we're all doing LCA. We all need to be very clear and transparent about if we show a number, what is based in that number? What is the boundary of the LCA? What is the scope that we're doing? What tool did we use? And what are the assumptions behind it is important for LCA in general, but is absolutely critical for wood with its sort of heightened levels of uncertainty. It's a fun world. Yeah, I think, I think yeah. that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's fantastic. And there's such a, a broad range of, of questions here. Deep Green will be back after a short commercial break. Deep Green is brought to you by Tarket, a Metropolis Sustainability Next partner. Discover how Tarket is working to maximize their positive impact with cradle to cradle certifications and best practices. When it comes to people and planet, 
Tarquette doesn't consider one without thinking of the other. This means exceeding indoor quality standards, instituting health material norms, reducing their carbon footprint, and creating a circular economy supported by cradle-to-cradle -cradle principles. Deep Green is back with part two of our episode on the carbon footprint of wood buildings. Here is Ethan Tucker with ZGF's Jacob Dunn and Marty Brennan. I guess the next thing I'd just sort of like to get an idea of, and, and maybe not super technically, but if we want to get into the technical details, you're more than welcome. I just may not be able to follow along super well. I guess what I'm wondering is sort of what's the range in terms of in terms of what's available from the the best most carbon sequestering mass timber to the worst most carbon emitting uh, option for mass timber. Sort of what what sort of what do those two scenarios look like? It's a good question. Not comfortable like throwing a percentage out there per se, but I'll sort of, of course, try course. to describe the magnitude of impact. I think on the ceiling, right, or on the, the good part of the ceiling is that, you know, as we start to do like the most mass timber building kind of possible now is sort of, let's just say five stories, right, 60,000 square feet, mass, it's like blue lamp columns, beams, CLT deck, maybe with or without the concrete topping side, you're still going to have a concrete foundation, you're going to still have some steel in the building. And let's say maybe we do a mass timber facade. Now that's sort of a big question mark. People are or uh, wrestling with how to do that, or if that's the right application of mass timber, that's a pretty high percentage of the structure being mass timber. I think if we just look at biogenic carbon savings and the savings and the product stage of just the less amount of energy it takes to make wood, I think we could get into the 50 to 80% savings range if we're looking at just the structure and envelope full cradle to grave assumptions there. 50 to 80%, which is huge, right? If we can say that we reduced our carbon footprint by 80% just through the use of wood, like that's a huge win, right? And then when we start to take into account the forest, that can flip either to turning your building truly carbon negative, in that case, if we are able to like successfully tie forest carbon to wood products in a credible way, it could actually double those savings in some cases and really flip your building to be truly carbon sequestering which is a really interesting prospect that we're betting at. We don't know if that's true yet. We do know that the magnitude of difference in carbon stock change from various forests could make that true. And then it's equally on the other side, right? If it can flip it that much negative, it can flip it that much positive too as well to where we can really erase a lot of those savings depending upon which forest we're choosing from. But the general good news is most of what we can choose from is going to be more on that positive range and we're trying to determine, well, how much? Is it like an extra 2% savings or an extra 20% savings, right? That's really sort of the space that we're trying to live in. It's going to be sort of rare, I think, in, in some cases, depending upon your region, to really flip that in, in, into a hugely negative direction. But yeah, that's, that's my attempt at answering that question. It's a good one. It's a fundamental one. But I think yeah. really serious, truly carbon negative buildings, it's something to engage in. And I would just add on the, just to stick to the best side of the equation, adaptive reuse. I mean, we can go into, you know, I'm in a 80 year old house and it's built out of probably fir studs and it's good and it's going to keep going as long as it doesn't burn down. I'm keeping that carbon out of, out of the sky. Below that would be to use, like I talked about, upcycled wood. Could we actually get some of this material 
that's not virgin. It's coming straight out of our built environment. And then are you designing for disassembly? And we've had some interesting conversations with structural engineers that maybe hybrids are the way to go. There was just a conference in Chicago, a tall building institute looking at steel, concrete, and wood together. And as you're really looking at to go tall, maybe steel columns make sense. And, and, and you're combining these things in such a way with, with connections that are easy to take apart. And so you're, you're really enabling that next generation of cradle to cradle circular reuse. Yeah, if I could just take another crack at answering that question now that I've gone through through that, maybe a different way to think about it too would be there's sort of the downstream implications of wood and biogenic carbon. There's the upstream implications of what happens to the forest. And then there's sort of the production emissions, right? And what we've sort of learned in our research is that biogenic carbon storage in the product is like huge, right? It's It's a high priority in terms of a big, I would say a big impact. And then in terms of the production emissions just from producing it, it's relatively small in comparison of that, right? So like, it's definitely impactful. It's something that we should look at, but it's pretty small compared to the biogenic carbon storage in the product. And in terms of the forest carbon, it can vary wildly to being way more than what's in the, the product or way less, just depending upon the variability in the spread that we're trying to determine what is the right range based upon different spatial and time scales, that, that kind of data, but it could be much more, much less than the downstream emissions or even what's in, in the product carbon. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, it sort of, it, it really feels like it all comes back to, back to the forest in, in, a, in a lot of ways um, and making sure that the forest that, that this wood material is coming from are, are properly managed. And I, I'm curious, you know, as Mass Timber starts to catch on in the U.S., they recently opened like the first Mass Timber residential building in Brooklyn a couple of weeks ago, right down the street from my old apartment, which is kind of interesting. So it's really it's really taking off here, and I'm I'm wondering if there is you know a chance that this could be that there could be opportunity to exploit it in a in a negative way. You know, seeing timber as this as carbon panacea or this sort of greenwashing effect of you know sustainable living when when maybe there are negative environmental impacts that it's covering up. And I'm wondering also about sort of connected to that, about sourcing wood from forests outside of the U.S. I mean, obviously in the Pacific Northwest, the timber industry is really mature. It's really well-regulated or heavily regulated. I don't know how well-regulated it is, but there's a lot of science there. Is there a risk of timber products coming from places where there's less regulation, less oversight, fewer scientists working on the forests? This is a... Very multifaceted question. So let's let's break it down because you really asked two questions. One is right this idea of good versus bad timber from the U.S. or from from the region, and then there's this idea like is there a risk? Like how are the markets in international mass timber industries, and you know what's the mean if we source with that? So let's start with that first one because it's a really fundamental question because I think that too often both sides of the kind of environmentalism versus like wood industry debate jump to this sort of false choice or these false binaries, right? Either all wood sourcing or mass timber or forestry is good or all forestry mass timber you know, harvesting is bad. And really it's a much more nuanced answer as it's always, it depends, right? There's always things to look at in terms of, well, it depends on the region. It depends on the forest type. It depends on the lane donor. 
depends on the kind of forestry that they're engaging in. And it depends, honestly, it can even get down to like a stain by stain basis, right? So like I would always just caution folks to never jump to one side of that spectrum too quickly. And then also to be wary of folks in the supply chain on both ends, the environmentalism side and the pure industry side, that say that they have it all figured out or have like overly confident positions on this is absolutely the most sustainable thing that we can do, or we should never cut down a tree because it's never sustainable. Folks that have those very defined, very sort of opposite viewpoints, it's just not helpful, right? Because the truth is really somewhere in the middle. So I would say that would be the first thing is that it's not helpful to view all mass timbers bad, just like it's not helpful to view all, all mass timber is good. That being said, I think that what we're interested in is really just understanding the differences so we can make better choices in procurement and understand the design impacts that we have on procurement and thus both the environmental and carbon impacts of mass timber sourcing, right? So when we first started to, to dive into what a mass timber roof was for the airport, my job was to make it the most sustainable mass version of mass timber that it could be. I had no idea what that was, <laughs> right? I had to engage the supply chain in a way that was open to hear from both sides, right? What is the role of markets in promoting forest conservation? and afforestation and preventing deforestation? And what's the role of ecological forestry in making sure that we balance ecology and environment and economy, right? All of those things are a very dynamic relationship that the key is we need to understand better where our wood's coming from so we can engage in those conversations without being forced into these false binaries of, well, we don't really know where it comes from because the industry is not set up that way. So it's either all good or it's all bad. Of course, it's all good because we want there to be like healthy markets. Right, like that is sort of like we don't want to get cornered into that and sort of transparency and tracking allows us to have a much more nuanced and richer conversation that our clients absolutely love too. right connecting with the community in this way you know tell that story i think is a is a win-win so that would be the first way that i would answer that but i want to give marty some space to take a crack at that as well i got some other things to say about good versus bad that's number two i i think it's a great question and we're really experiencing this with all supply chains we have a, one of our specifiers, she, Lana Rarick, she's always asking, is there slavery in this supply chain? And the answer is usually yes. And so we have to start these conversations and be inclusive to bring all of the industry along, all the GCs, all the forest owners. We can't start from a, a binary that closes the conversation. We, we have to open the conversation and find kind of those transitions because it's a long transition road where we have large tech companies that are double downing on, on carbon credits around the world, financializing forests and carbon offsets down to like the tree tracked by satellite data. We're probably going to see this happening where these companies are tracking the carbon in their buildings because it's, it's a financial investment. As, as we have more carbon taxes going into the future, you know, just thinking of the financialization of all of carbon, biogenic products that are stored in our buildings, stored in our cities, stored in our data centers, stored in our forests are going to become more critical. And so we need really transparent methods. And honestly, everybody's going to get on board. We're probably all going to become forest owners and, and managers and stewards. So I, I'm more hopeful than not in, in that, that kind of spectrum of tending towards inclusion and creating just robust markets that Everybody's coming in from different starting points and in different conditions. Growing a forest in the Southeast is a lot different than the Northwest. 
but they're great forests. And, and the Northeast has great forests and the West has great forests. But Jake's research on engaging all these specific forest owners and what are their challenges? What are their opportunities? What, what are the economic realities they're facing? I mean, a lot of the forestry practices in around Seattle and out on the Olympic Peninsula, they crashed all those economies. You know, they overharvested and they just crashed. So where's that that balance point of creating equity and inclusion and and just some form of resilience for economic resilience? I just want to point out, like one of the key things that Marty said in that is healthy markets and healthy forests are not mutually exclusive. And anyone that tells us they are are standing to gain from it being so polarized. And I would even add healthy communities as one of the other, you know, the other part of that three-legged stool. All of that is possible and we can engage that with mass timber in ways that we can't with other products. So it's really exciting to do a mass timber project because that opens all these doors that we don't have when you're mining for some mineral that goes into, you know, these more intensive products. I think that's a really interesting part of this as well. The other thing I just wanted to mention are a couple of the kind of myths that we hear as we navigate this process, because once again, they're sort of like tending too far on one side of those spectrums, that it's it's just unhelpful. This is a good time to kind of unpack those a little bit, because they also relate to some of your, your other questions. The first one is that all forestry is sustainable. And I think sustainability is like a Rorschach test, right? People, everyone looks at sustainability, and they see into it what they want to see sometimes. And I think sustainability is really the wrong term in general, right? Because if you asked, were asked by somebody, you know, how's your relationship with your partner? You said, well, you know, it's sustainable. That's not necessarily a good thing, right? You want to say it's resilient, it's regenerative, it's restorative, right? It's like healing. It's like gives me energy. Those are all the things that we want our impact on the environment to be. So less bad is something that we're not interested in. Right? Our clients aren't interested in it. Our clients, we want to be leaders in this front. So thinking about like legal minimum forestry as being good enough because we're not cutting down the rainforest in Brazil, we're not interested in just less bad. We actually want it to, to be good. And we want to really be supporting a forestry that heals the environment and heals these communities that right, have been inevitably impacted by various aspects of markets or the environment or climate change. So all of that is something that I think is, is absolutely critical. The other thing is that cutting down the forest to put into buildings isn't sustainable. My answer to that, right, that's the other side of the spectrum, is, well, it depends. If we're doing good forestry, putting into a building that's like a 100-year, 200-year structural product, and we're offsetting the impact of fossil fuel-intensive industries like coal, steel, concrete, right, then there are these benefits that optimize the entire system, right? We can't just look at any one of these, in this case, carbon pools, the landscape for buildings and, and really just have tunnel vision. So that's a really important aspect. And speaking of tunnel vision, we made a tool that only calculates carbon, but we'll be the first ones to tell you it shouldn't just be about carbon, right? Forests, their superpower is to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, but they do so much for us. Marty, we're already owners of forests, right? We own like 60% of the land in Oregon, if you think about the federal government or state lands that we fundamentally are both stewards and owners of. And the fact that if you look at what is the sustainable definition of forestry as per what is codified into LCA standards, it says that if your carbon stock has increased over time, which all of North America has, so we can assume carbon neutrality in the forest or that it's all increasing, so that's sustainable. The definition of sustainability there is just that 
the trees regrow and you can continue to have that that market. And we need to, to move beyond that so fast, right? If you believe the IPCC reports, if you believe sort of like the kind of ecological imperatives that we have today, we have to do more faster and at a wider scale more inclusively. We have to bring everyone along because there's so little time for us to really turn things around that we're interested in trying to understand the diversity within the supply chain to understand how we can support folks that are really doing the right thing in this case. So yeah, that was the other thing I wanted to mention about that. No, I think I think that's great. I mean, it's, yeah, and I think, I think sort of the work that you all are doing, which is why obviously we wanted to talk to you is so important because it's sort of, it's sort of setting up those conversations for, for more folks to have as they dive into, into the mass timber world. Maybe if you just both want to offer sort of your closing thoughts, the future of mass timber, carbon accounting as it, as it relates to forestry. Well, I'll just say that there's, there's three cedar trees growing in my yard right now and they're self-planted. And I live in a neighborhood in West Seattle where I can see that these cedars, have, they've been here for millennia. And at first it's like, well, how am I going to negotiate this tree that's going to be 180 feet tall? And it's gotten me thinking about, well, I can see around my neighborhood, there's trees that are 120 feet tall and we can, we can coexist. So we can have the forest in literally in the city. And I guess just that, yeah, we need to... I think we need to grow trees as designers. We need to become part of the supply chain and not just engage the supply chain, but literally start growing our materials and just closing that loop is going to just help us as designers and developing policies and really, uh, yeah, I'll I'll end with that. (laughs) No, that's a lovely, that's a lovely thought. Thank you. Definitely well said. In terms of, I guess, closing thoughts I have, there are three. The first one is check out Upstream, right? So shameless plug for Upstream. The the name of the the tool, the full name is Upstream Forestry Carbon and LCA Tool. It's available if you go to our website, or I'm sure there'll be some link from from the podcast for that. We're in an interesting phase right now with the project development. We have a proof of concept forest carbon factor number in there, and then we're currently being incubated with the Carbon Leadership Forum to sort of understand where that might go, right? So right now it's a proof of concept. The question is, how will that evolve? Will it get codified into the tool in the next release? Are we going to change directions altogether? Check, you can download the tool, you can, you can sign up for the email, or you can start to email us and just stay abreast of all those changes right now because there's a lot going on in that sphere. So that's sort of like closing thought number one. Closing thought number two is that if you're a designer out there, we should just be asking where, the, where our wood's coming from. It's a very simple thing to ask. And from a level of transparency, it should be a pretty easy thing for the industry to deliver. Right? If we just ask, where did you buy the logs that served our project in your production run? That's something that will let us wait or tell into transparency to kind of spur these conversations. And we're working on kind of generic uh, spec template language and reporting templates to be able to give to the industry as a way to have us all be making this ask consistently and in a way that the mills know how, how to respond to. So stay tuned for that as well as we develop these tools to expand this impact. Then the third thing that I just wanted to mention is just this idea about mass timber being a climate solution, right? The promise of mass timber is that it's a climate solution. Just look at you know the latest softwood lumber board, woodworks, and USDA mass timber competition. It was called Building to like Net Zero Carbon, right? It's something that we all are, are trying to understand what is the potential of mass timber as a climate solution? I just want to offer that there's really two ways that we can mess this up. One is that we 
adopt mass timber too fast without enough thoughtfulness in terms of what it does both to the environment that it's sourced from and to the markets both now and in the future. That's one way we can mess it up. The second way is that we don't adopt it fast enough because we know that it has these inherent benefits and that it does have a place in terms of growing in the market. So we need to accelerate that in the right way. So I think that the truth is somewhere in between and that's sort of where that, that'll happen. But I think it's a great way to kind of stay open-minded as we navigate this to really unlock the full potential of Master Group forward. Right on, that was great guys. I think that was, that was really, uh, really fascinating. Yeah, thank you so much for, for taking the time, both of you. Deep Green is produced by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal, and this episode was reported by Ethan Tucker. The podcast is edited by Hannah Vidi with support from Lauren Volker. You can read more about the Upstream tool at metropolismag.com. A big thanks to today's guests and to all the folks at Sandow Design Group who support Deep Green. This is the last episode of this season of Deep Green. So if you need to catch up on past episodes, this would be a great time to do it. And look out for more special episodes of Deep Green in the next few months. Available wherever you get your podcasts.